Welcome to Mysterious Universe Plus, Season 23, Episode 4. Coming up on this show, we've got the Purple Cloaked Mantis, Astral Realm Dummy Doubles, and Home Alone 5 Alien Abduction. I'm Benjamin Grundy. Joining me is Aaron Wright. There's five Home Alones? Well, there's four, but this is the fifth, which is a story about a precocious eight-year-old boy who's been left at home by his parents, and he has to set up all these traps... To stop the aliens from abducting him. Actually, that's probably going to be stolen by Hollywood now because I think that would make a good movie. Which is a true story. He has this Rube Goldberg-type device attached to his door so if the aliens come in, it triggers a fan which blows on his face and wakes him up. Then he's got some device that throws a sheet over them. Where's this coming from? What book is this? This is from Experiencer, Raised in Two Worlds by William Konkoleski. Konkoleski. Honkaleski. <laughs> Great pronunciation. Uh, Bill. We'll just call him Bill. Bill. Then we'll go with that. Yeah. <laughs> That'll be a lot easier. He's got two books out. Uh, Experiencer 1, Raised in Two Worlds, and Experiencer 2, Two Worlds Collide. Apparently, there's a third one coming. But basically, what he's been doing is just every couple of years re- revealing these memoirs of what's occurred to him throughout his entire life. I actually think I skimmed through the first one. Oh, really? Yeah, just off the top of my head, I think, yeah. So I think I know where we're going to be heading on this episode. It's been out for a while. The first one came out in 2009. Yeah. But I'm going back into them now because he just released the second book yeah. in November last year, and I just had a chance to look at it. And there's some pretty wild stuff that goes on. The poor guy. I mean, he's got experiences going back to literally being in the crib. Yes. And having you know horrible memories come forth. Which unfortunately though is quite typical as we know for people that have interactions, you know, abductees. They seem to be lifelong abductees. They have lifelong interactions and those that can recall back a lot earlier than, you know, normal people will recall interactions even as a like a little baby. Well he says that's why he can remember it. Yeah. Because it was so terrifying. Yeah. When he was two. Uh, what have you got coming up? Well, I'm going to be going into further out-of-body experiences, and we're going to head down the path of some really unusual ones, including people that have their egos seep out of their brains or out of their skulls through the sutures in the actual skull itself. So, yes, that is all coming Ectoplasm? up. Ectoplasm? No, it's the... Some, some it's, kind of consciousness goo? It is it is a consciousness glue. It's a goo, sorry. It's the consciousness cloud that we describe, but it might give us some insight and understanding as to the idea of why consciousness is non-local. Once it gets because out, it's a goo. It's a goo, <laughs> it's and it's a goo. Lo- well, it's a cloud. But I guess it's a goo, but then it aerosols as it comes out of your oh, head. It becomes this works? cloud that kind of just bobs around your head, mm. relaying information into your brain. Do you have to wear a mask? No, I don't think you have to wear a mask. No, none of that. It's all a theory. So it's safe to breathe in other people's consciousness goo. I think it's very personalized. <laughs> I think it stays with you. So we're not, we don't have to worry about it. Something in the news to preempt this story. It's over at the Daily Star in the UK with a great headline. Horrified dog food factory worker saw seven foot tall telepathic alien mantis while cycling home. Paul Froggett, his name is, 26 years old. He's sketched the ET, and it's basically, you know, the tabloid press in the UK making fun of the the poor guy. Uh, His story is he uh, was cycling home late after a shift one night, and he was going through this woodland in Warwick in the UK. And he says, look, it sounds crazy, but I felt I could sense this thing's feelings towards me, and it was just pure alien hatred. He said it was like being a fly attacked by a spider in a David Attenborough documentary. Uh, He's been now dubbed the Mantis Man of Warwick and he's been so traumatised he's he's left his job. Uh, He can't cycle anymore 
around anymore. And the whole article is just making fun of this guy. Again, it was at the end of this 12-hour shift and uh, really early on a Thursday morning, 5 a.m., he's walking home and he sees this giant glowing orange thing in the sky. He's actually got photos of it. I'll, I'll link to the article in, in the show notes. It's this weird kind of lit orange orb but he said as he stopped to take photos, it started to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And he started to get chills down his back. When he kept cycling and left the object behind, he said uh, it was just kind of like the, the forest was completely quiet, like the Oz effect kicked in. He said he couldn't hear anything. There was a chorus of, usually a chorus of bird song, but then there was nothing. Mm. And he said, as I cycled down the path, I came around a bend. I saw something I will never forget. Standing a few meters ahead is what I can only describe as a humanoid praying mantis. This thing was at least seven feet tall, light green with a triangular head and big oval black eyes. It had all the features of a mantis, but stood on two legs and had a somehow human-like shape about it. I was completely frozen with fear, he said, for what felt like an age, but was probably only seconds. I stared into this creature's eyes and it stared back. I felt like it could read my mind, he said, and I could read its. But my fear was replaced with completely alien thoughts of utter hatred and evil, and I felt it was projected from this thing. I suddenly snapped out of this hypnotic kind of state, and it made a, sta a step back as if it was going to pounce on me. And that's the end of the article. <laughs> yeah. Paul, what happened, dude? Uh, like, what happened? Paul Sieben actually had a write-up on our website, mysteriousuniverse.org, just, you know, commenting, and he made a couple of really valid points. He's like, what this guy is describing is very similar. It's very closely matched with what other abductees have described while on board. The actual size of this mantis being, there's some belief that they seem to come from the Draco constellation, but they're always described as being around six to seven feet tall. Their bodies are identical to that of an insect praying mantis, but they've got these dark brown or black slanted eyes. And while that wasn't included in this, this particular report, the description of it kind of imbuing hatred upon him is something also that's reported in these incidents. Yeah, well, the reason I preempt my segment with that story, even though it's in the crappy UK tabloid press, is that the exact same thing happens to Bill in this story, Experiencer. And why did the guy go to the tabloids? I don't know. Why that's, would you yeah. go to the tabloids? Look, it's the kind of thing that if you have an experience like that, where are you going to go? I mean... I guess you are going to go to the tabloids or tell someone. Like, you want to tell... If you see something that crazy, you want to tell someone. The other possibility as well is that he's just read all the other reports and is just making it up. But the fact that he can't go back to his job unless he's trying to get out of his job, yeah. maybe that's one thing. Look, let's go into this book from Bill Konkoleski. Uh, he says early on that he makes it clear when he's referring to events that are remembered as part of regression. So... When I'm telling you these stories from his book, he says you basically should assume that they're recalled memories. Yes. Okay. They're not from hypnotic regressions for the most part. And he says to the extent that this is of worth in terms of his experiences, he says, I've shared my accounts with several psychologists who are affiliated with MUFON, none of whom had told me that I gave off any flags of disorder. He says, in addition, I participated in a sleep study focusing on the abduction phenomena that was run by Wayne State University of Detroit, Michigan, which indicated that I appeared to have a healthy sleep pattern. So he's fine. He's a normal guy. His first memory, as I said, was in the spring of 1973. He was only two years old. And this is a memory he's always had. It's not fuzzy. It's just been locked in there since as long as he can remember. 
the weather was warm. He remembers the windows were open at night and he was sleeping in his crib. He was only two years old. And he's calmly laying there, glancing about his room. And it's dimly lit by the streetlight outside. And after several minutes, he says, I was startled by a skull face that appeared from the shadows and slowly started to approach the foot of the crib. He said it stared at me with deep and chilling large black eyes. These eyes could see through me and adding to this terror, I couldn't make out any body supporting its head. This wasn't anything natural and it was entirely real. Now, at the time, he knew what a skull looked like because he had older brothers and they used to run around in you know, masks Hall- Halloween and, masks yeah. and costumes. And he said he did what any other two-year-old would do and just scream for his parents, like absolutely shrieked. And he hears his mother from the other room just kind of tiredly go, oh, it's okay, honey, just go back to sleep, it's nothing. Some influence over her. Yeah, and he's lying there just thinking, why won't they come? Why won't they come? Why won't they come? Uh, Eventually, the skull just kind of, the entity just fades back into the darkness and it doesn't care that he's screaming at the top of his lungs. Now, he would occasionally recall this event to his parents and brothers over the years, and they would all kind of listen respectfully to him because there was some weird kind of ghostly stuff that happened in that house as well. Like his older brother occasionally had weird experiences and saw this spectral thing coming through his room occasionally, but none of them had any memory of that night. None of them had any memory of him freaking out for any specific reason. So years later, when he was in his uh, either late teens or early 20s, he actually reached out to MUFON in Michigan, who put him in touch with Shirley Coyne. Now, Shirley Coyne was a UFO researcher, but also a, a therapist and a, quite a skilled regression therapist, hypnotic regression. And sure enough, she takes him under. And all she says to him is, as part of the process of putting him under, take us back to your early earliest memory. Like, what's the earliest thing you can remember? And all of a sudden, he's peacefully lying there in his crib, and it's back to that experience And his feeling of calm as a child is shattered by this small, strange man silently walking in through the bedroom door. And he he can now see that his face is horrific. It looks like something between, uh, a cross between a human corpse and an army ant, he says. The flesh was pale grey, the eyes were large and dark and glistening and menacing. And he has this clear recollection of it looking down at him from the, the foot of his crib with just a casual interest, he he said it had. He said, whatever he was doing in our house, I appeared to be just a moment's distraction. I tried to see his body and was bothered that there appeared to be something wrong with my recall. So for some reason, his mind had replaced the bars that he was sure was on his crib with just a flat panel, like a flat board. So we couldn't actually see the entity's body. And as hard as he tried in this regression, he couldn't break through this. He was convinced this was some kind of... Uh, a screen memory? Yeah, block. That yeah. W- perhaps was blocking his mind from seeing what the creature looked like. But why would it do that? Why would it block you from seeing the remainder of its body, but then he could see quite clearly, obviously, from the description, its face and its features? Well, the therapist suggests that there was something about its body that was so shocking, his mind was blocking it out. Yeah, okay. So he remembers screaming and screaming and screaming, and his mother just saying, go back to sleep. And he also tried to remember which one of his brothers was in the room with him when this happened, because he always knew that when he was that young, he always slept with one of his older brothers, like he shared a room with them. Right. So he could never quite break that through to that memory as well. And he felt like that was some kind of block too. Like, which brother was it? Was it my older brother or my second brother? And again, this being just was unaffected by screaming and just he remembered it walking out 
And when he got home from the regression, he was still living with his parents at the time, he told his mother about it. And she said two interesting things that really uh, stuck out to him. First of all, she points out that when he was that young, there were no brothers staying in his bedroom. They refused to sleep with him because he would occasionally freak out in the middle of the night. Yeah, so it's scaring them as well. Secondly, she told me he said that my crib did in fact have a flat board at its base and that if I wanted to, I could go up in the attic and check it because it was still there. So he goes up and checks and it does indeed just have this flat board. So what this did was validate for him that hypnotic regression was accurate. It wasn't actually confabulating these details. What it did was correct details from his false memory. But then it's obvious that then he didn't have a block in place. He just hadn't recalled correctly that there was a board at the end. That's right. That's exactly right. So then what does that mean for the entity that he saw? Was it just simply that he that the thing just looked over the end and yeah. he couldn't recall? Okay. Right. It just means there was no bars. He remembered bars from mm. his memory, but the regression showed that they weren't there. Yeah. And when he went and checked, this was the case. So again, it showed him that hypnotic regression was accurate. So after this, the next experience he remembers is he's four years old and it's just his mother and him at home. His father's out at work. His four brothers are at school. And it's a nice day out and his mother decides to go and weed in the garden. And he actually wanted a nap, which I think is amazing that a four-year-old would actually ask for a nap. So she says, I'll take a honey. I'll be right outside. You go in and have your nap. So he remembers... Uh, lying down. And he says, I I can't remember if I was quite asleep, but this pleasant and warm tingling started to spread over me. And he said when he tried to open his eyes, he couldn't and then discovered he couldn't move at all. Now, he says before he could even process this strange situation, he feels a hand lightly touching his shoulder and he feels this hand pulling him up as this tingling momentarily cranks up to this heavy vibration and then suddenly stops. And suddenly he can see again, he can move again. And he's fascinated because the hand pulling him up is attached to a strange little man. Now, he says this little man dropped him lightly on his feet. And then he notices, oh, it's not just me and this little man. There's two other little men who look exactly like this other guy standing behind him. They all had warmly hued leathery gray skin Again, giant gleaming black eyes that wrapped around their heads. And he said they appeared to be smiling. Although their little slits for mouths weren't moving, he just had the impression that they were happy and smiling. Now, bizarrely, he's not afraid at all. He's just deeply curious about what's going on. And he can see them because it's clear daylight. They're extremely slender, he says. The arms and legs are as thin as sticks. And they're about three feet tall, so they're about the same height as he is. He can't remember if they're wearing any clothes. He said, you know, they're bald, their ears are just little holes on the side of their heads, and it's hard to look at any other details apart from their large wraparound eyes. Now, they basically stop uh, or step out into this hall in the house, and they beckon him to follow them. And he says they moved like weird, stiff little puppets. (laughs) It's really bizarre. But it appeared that they were having fun. They were having a good time, and he kind of wanted to join in on on the fun. Now, the one who appeared to be the leader of the trio asks Bill to lie down on his belly. And he feels like this is a game, so he just complies. And as he does this, the air starts to get this electrical fizz about it. It starts to kind of crackle and spark. And he realizes that he feels incredibly light and he actually starts floating. So from this upstairs hallway, 
he he looks down the stairs and he can see the greys kind of float down the stairs and wait for him. They beckon for him to come. Now, <laughs> he basically takes a run up and like Peter Pan flies down the stairs and kind of glides effortlessly, swooping down in front of them and landing on his feet. And they all kind of jump up and down in excitement. Everyone's happy. What a fun, enjoyable game this is. Now, in this excited moment, he tells them, I can't wait to show my mother what I can do. I'm going to go show mom my new trick. Now, he immediately gets this telepathic communication that, oh, no, 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 this is our little secret. You can't tell anyone about this. Now, he's a little bit upset because he wants to show his mum his new trick, but he doesn't want to disappoint his new friends. So it takes him years before he ever tells anyone this memory. The beings then told him they were leaving and he finds himself instantly back in bed, tingling from head to toe. It took him about a minute before he could move again. He immediately jumps out of bed and runs out of the room looking for the little men, but they're gone. You have to wonder if he was out of body rather than actually physically being taken somewhere. Like when he felt the tingling, perhaps the tingling was removing him from his body. Yeah, I think that's exactly what's going on. And that's what Bill says as well. Because first of all, it's the middle of the day. Very brazen for greys to come down in the day. Where are you going to see a a flying saucer Mm. in the middle of the day, although not unheard of? Uh, And essentially they're they're showing him some kind of non-physical interaction. And he's wondering if this was an experiment to see if he could go into the OBE state. Maybe they were demonstrating to him that he's more than his physical body. Maybe it's a way for them to endear themselves to a four-year-old. Yeah, potentially. This kind of Peter Pan flying game. Good concept. And more of these strange childhood memories were, you know, consistent across his, his early life. He tells a story of this beautiful summer afternoon and he's playing in his backyard with one of his neighbor friends, Chet. And... They're, they're about the same age. I think he's seven at the time and Chet's six. And they're just climbing in one of the backyard trees having fun. And this strange fog starts rolling in from the side of the house. And it almost seemed to move towards them with purpose, like it had a mind. He said, at first I assumed it was smoke from the neighbor's barbecue or something. But when it got closer, they realized it was like a fine, odorless mist, definitely not smoke. And it continued past them into the neighbor's backyard and just kept on going. Never altered its pace, never kind of changed directions, just went and the air was completely clear in its wake. Now, he had an odd feeling about the cloud. He, As strange as it sounds, he described it as being aware. Like the cloud was alive and he got the impression that it was looking at him specifically. His friend Chet didn't care. Like his friend was just playing in the tree and just thought, oh, that's weird and kept on playing. But as he watched the mist kind of disappear and roll on out of sight, this fly lands on his arm and he goes to brush it away and he realizes he's got this fresh scar on his upper arm. And it's just like a line of a scar. It looks pretty much freshly healed. And he's like, where the hell did that come from? I I can't remember cutting myself there. That's really strange. Do they tag him with something? Implant him? Yeah, he knew that he, he didn't injure himself and he asked his parents about it and they had no explanation. Now, he had, he still had this scar when he went in for a regression session with Shirley and they decided to use that scar as a point to try and find the source of it, to try and find out what happened. So he gets regressed back and he finds himself back in his backyard while that mist approached him. 
And he now realizes that the mist was really cool in temperature. It almost smelled like smoke from a smoke machine. Uh, and this thin silhouette appears in the fog. And it's a tall grey walking towards him. He didn't run, but he just felt compelled to stay put. And as this entity reached him, it paused and forced, you know, deep eye contact with him and basically telepathically asked him how he felt. And he replied, I'm fine. It was satisfied by this answer and just kept on walking with the mist and basically it disappeared. That was it. Why go to so much effort to ask a simple question like, how are you? The only thing that comes into my mind is that they probably took a sample. Well, they're trying to figure out exactly what you're asking. Like, what, what, what's the point of this? Why would they check up on him? And what, what's the, what's this, how's this connected to the scar? Well, Shirley, the therapist, just simply says, okay, uh, have you ever seen this grey before? When's the first time you saw this particular entity? And he says, as soon as she says that, this flood of memory just starts coming in. All these memories start flooding in. He suddenly finds himself in bed on the night before this strange mist event. And he's awakened by a strong tingling sensation. He opens his eyes and there's this sleek metallic cable hanging over his head. And he's looking at this black void where the ceiling should be. He's completely paralyzed and this tip of the cable stays stationary, but the rest of it is like whipping around in some unseen storm. And every time it whips, this cable kind of whips around, he feels like there's a, a, an electrical field that's being generated and it's getting stronger and stronger as this cable's whipping around, it's gesticulating. Now, he feels his body changing as well, like it's vibrating stronger and stronger. And when it reaches this uncomfortable level, he feels his reality shift into this trapezoidal room. And he describes these metal walls that's bathed in this kind of blue light with no source. And there's two short greys in the room who are almost expecting him, like they're waiting for him to show up. They've initiated this, clearly. Yeah, and in one corner of the room, there's like a glass tube that might be it looks almost like a shower, but it's filled with this weird grey liquid. And he's more in awe than scared about what's going on. He's like, how the hell did I get here? And he recognises the grey or the greys as these playmates that helped him float a few years earlier. But it seems like they're not in a playful mood this time. Now, a door slides open on the short wall of the room and he's ushered into this rectangular white room. Uh, there's a table he's made to lie down on it. Uh, and essentially, they leave him alone. Now, eventually he realizes no one's babysitting me. Like I can get up and move around. So he gets up to explore this weird room that he's in. Basically, there's three doorways to choose from. There's three paths he can take. He decides on one of them and is essentially led to this room with a, a chair in it. It's almost like a dentist's chair. And he's terrified of it. He Tries, tries to turn back and return where he came from, but a, gray, a tall grey turns up and tells him telepathically it's going to be okay, get in the chair. Why would they show him three doors? And I was wondering, maybe this is some weird uh, estimate of hum the human psyche or a psychological test, but then I thought about that concept that paranormal phenomena needs to be invited in. It needs to, you need to be voluntary in dealing with it. And maybe that's their way of getting people to be voluntary. Or it's just literally three different operating rooms. Yeah, <laughs> like that's, that's a possibility. They got as well. a lot of Maybe people looking for meaning. It. There's no meaning there. The the tall grey steps in front of him when he's in the chair, puts its face close to his, and all he can see is the big eyes. 
And it basically telepathically says, you're being very good. If you be good, you'll get to see the colour blue. And Great. he's thinking, what the hell? And he suddenly feels this sharp pain in his upper right arm. And he looks down and sees this thin, clean slice across his arm. He didn't see what caused it. He just felt it. And as he's watching, it miraculously starts to heal before his eyes, just seals over and the pain turns to tingling and then this dull throb and then there's nothing. Now, when he looks up from his arm, he's nose to nose with this tall grey. You've been very good, it says. Its eyes then change from this deep black to this beautiful bright blue and it's almost like looking at glowing police sirens, but they're having this tranquil, joyous effect on him, like numbing his consciousness. Isn't this what Huggins described? Yeah, I mean, tons of tons of abductees have described this. Uh, it doesn't matter which sort, whether you're looking at yeah, Huggins or um, David Jacobs yeah, people the, or the, anyone. Yeah, that, something came out of the eyes. There was a light that you know gave this sense of peace and calm. It was hypnotic. Well, when the colour faded from the eyes, so did his consciousness. So he was clearly hypnotised from them. It's all he could recall from that night. Did the regression reveal anything or he hasn't undergone regression for that? That's what the regression revealed. Right, okay. So in the middle of the night later on, he has this other, uh, again, this isn't a regression, this is just straight up memory. He finds himself standing at the foot of his bed. And he's like, that's weird. I, I don't usually sleepwalk. What am I doing out of bed? And he starts to wonder how this could have happened when he notices he's not alone. Standing behind, beside him is this tall grey wearing like a tight-fitting black jumpsuit. And it addresses him as if it's his babysitter. It telepathically instructs him, you must return to bed now. It's almost as if they've been doing something together and now it's time to finish. Now, he couldn't remember anything that had transpired previous to this, but he was curious as to what's going on. So he says, uh, I don't want to go to bed. So now, this, now, he's like a in his early teens at this stage, and the being says to him, but look, Janice is asleep there in your bed. Don't you want to go to bed with her? And he looks over, and under the covers, there is someone in his bed, and he can see the foot poking out. Now, Janice is a girl from school that he has a crush on. And yeah, he looks <laughs> looks at his bed and it looks like Janice is in his bed. And it didn't even occur to him to question why Janice was in his bed. He's just like, all right. So he climbs in uh, and crawls on top of the bed. And as soon as his hand brushes the uncovered foot that's poking out. Is it a rubber dummy? He's sucked into the body and he realizes it was his body lying under the sheet the whole time. It wasn't Janice at all. Why would they do that to him? They tricked him. They tricked him back into his body. Now, he realised... There's got to be other ways to get someone back into their body. Well, this just shows that they'll lie. They'll lie and deceive and trick you. He said, my entire episode had been an out-of-body experience and the grey had tricked me back into my body. So around this time, he started having a ton of unwanted OBEs. He could feel them coming on like this, you know, tingling and sparking sensation. Uh, Just this... vibratory experience where he knew he was about to leave and it actually would terrify him. He did not want to get out of his body. He used to try all these tricks like stick out his tongue or wiggle his fingers just to try and stay, you know, out of that state. And occasionally it it worked, but there were also times when he couldn't help it. He would just kind of pop out. Were there always beings there when he came out of his body? Sometimes yes and sometimes no. Like one time where there wasn't 
was still pretty interesting. Uh, he woke up and found himself in every single room of the house simultaneously at the same time. That's something that I read in Steiger's book, in Astral Projections, the same kind of thing. No aliens involved in these particular cases, but people finding that they are in multiple spaces at the same time. Uh, but one really good, and just to, to interject, but it, it actually fits really well with what you're describing, there was somebody who had an experience where they had been having ongoing out-of-body experiences and they seemed to start indulging in them. And this is something that's always dangerous because if you don't start doing research, like if you start having them, you really should probably educate yourself about them before you start trying to encourage them. But he continued to encourage them and he got further and further into traveling away from his body and going to foreign locations and even through time at one point until ultimately things just became a little bit uncomfortable and he found himself in multiple rooms at the same time. Like he was still in the house, but seeing the house from multiple angles in different rooms. Then what happened was is that he somehow found himself, he woke up back in his body but now there were doppelgangers of him through the house. There were like these fuzzy snow forms that slowly dissolved. It oh, was like weird. this delayed echo of yeah. his astral body inside the house. Like his mind had created these forms. But you know what? After all this, after having all these experiences, he has another out-of-body experience where he sees these white snow fuzzy forms that are actually like big blobs that are kind of like jelly bags moving around. They were the ones that were orchestrating seemingly all the out-of-body experiences. Oh, so it's like they were separate entities. Yeah, absolutely. And they were the ones that were seemingly were facilitating this entire thing. So this is where the warning comes in that, look, if you're having out-of-body experiences, probably try to assess why you're having them and understand what you're doing before you actually do it. Well, in terms of other entities from his experience, first of all, he was in the basement, the attic, the living room, the laundry, the kitchen, all at once, Everywhere. getting like a 360-degree view or feed of all those different rooms, and it's totally not overpowering your con- like your no, mind. No, no, it's can just totally, natural. It's totally normal. It's yep. just like me looking out of my two eyeballs right now. It's it's totally um, manageable. Yeah. And the weird thing that came from it, though, is he had a vague feeling, he said, of a sort of formless living energy that permeated the whole house and didn't appear to be coming from him. He said this energy felt deeply familiar and friendly, indeed loving. And he said it's what I might even consider to be the soul of the very house itself, which I thought was really cool. Like he was somehow... Panpsychism. Yeah, he was somehow in touch with the, the soul of the house. It's like when Marie Kondo goes, I give you joy, it gives me joy. <laughs> and she says a little prayer to the house. Yeah, it's like the yeah. soul of the house. Uh, he says that was one of the few pleasant astral experiences he had ever had. Usually he'd get out of his body and there'd be some freakish ghoul of a grey waiting for him. Um, one of the worst situations, he was 16, still haunts him to this day. It's February 1988. He awoke uh, just after having lifted off out of his body and immediately notices two short greys with him in the room and they've got this really cold, serious manner, like they're, they're not playing around. They're, got, they're on a mission. Uh, so he tries in vain to dive back into his body because he's like, if I, get back, if I can get back into my body, they can't take me. Um, but he feels himself being dragged off the bed, still in his astral form, as if he's like a helpless animal. He can't do anything about it. And he, he starts to black out when he briefly spots the silhouette of this other entity out in the hallway, and he's never seen this thing before. It's much taller than anything he's ever seen. It's way more ominous and dark than anything he's ever encountered. 
And to his horror, as soon as he observes it, he starts getting drawn towards it, like floating towards it. This thing telepathically bellows. And when he says bellows, it was like a deep, booming male voice that just kind of reverberated through his entire astral body. It said his name. All it said was Bill. And as soon as it said his name, he blacked out completely. Now, with everything going on, like all these out-of-body experiences, this new entity that's more terrifying than anything he's ever seen, this is where it basically turns into Home Alone. Like he turns his bedroom into an obstacle course. And he realizes, look, I'm being taken in these out-of-body experiences. But yeah, so it's essentially futile. I, I'm not going to make it easy for him. He's just, This is his reasoning. I'm just going to make it as difficult as possible because I know there's physical aspects to this. That's why I had the scar. Yeah, you do what you can. So he, he had this early warning system he set up. Basically, at his door, he had a drumstick that was latched in there. And if anyone tried to open it, this would wiggle a cable that would pull <laughs> the fan over. And the fan was constantly blowing on him. So even with his eyes closed, if he stopped feeling the fan, he knew that something was wrong. In addition to that, he had the television and the radio on 24-7, so it would sound like he was still awake in his room. Uh, he had this sheet that was rigged up, so if anyone came into the room at a certain point, the sheet would fall down on top of them. And basically his floor was just like textbooks and Lego, like Lego traps set up. You know, like open micro tins. machines. <laughs> yeah, micro machines. And just this basic horrible obstacle course. And he had his the family dog Sammy in there as well. It didn't matter though. Like everything no. still kept on happening. The only thing that came from this is his parents got really mad because his uh his room was always a mess. He got to the point where this is still in high school, he started taking caffeine pills to stay awake all night rather than go to sleep and face these experiences, which right. is horrible. His mother found the caffeine pills and, you know, she confronted him and said, yeah, this is a drug, this is dangerous. And he's like, I can't, I have to take them or they're going to take me at night. I'm going to leave my body and the aliens are going to take me. And that's when she finally realized, oh, this is actually serious. He's actually traumatized by what I thought was a fantasy. So with that entity in the hallway, we get a, a clearer picture on what that was because he's eventually regressed later with Shirley, taken back to this moment when he was 17. And immediately the plush chair in her office starts to feel like his bed from when he was, you know, in 1988. And he's back that night when it all happened. And he feels a presence push into his room. It's the two short greys. They sailed swiftly in through the walls. They didn't come in through the door. He clearly saw them staring at him with these large expectant eyes and he tried to jump away from them, but of course he's paralyzed and he's tingling. He's slowly levitating up against his will because he's out of body. And then he focuses towards the wall at the foot of his bed and he's shocked to realize that he can sense this other being waiting in the hallway. And this entity, its aura is so intense that it is burning orange and it's actually glowing through the wall. He can see this glow coming through the wall. That's how serious this entity is. You also though have to wonder, is that some type of technology it's using to facilitate its travel through solid objects? I don't know if it feels like technology to him. It's just pure fear from this thing. He says he had a feeling it could literally eat his soul. 
And then he started to, it started to draw him in towards it, uh, out into the hall to face him. That's when it, it called his name or said his name. Now he's struggling, he's swimming through the air, trying to get away from it. And that's when it says his name and it just reverberates through this bass reverberates almost as if it's going to split his whole being apart. And he has a, this realization, I, I cannot resist this thing. This thing is too powerful. This entity is too powerful. But if they're so angry, why does it continue to come here? Like what's with the anger? I've never actually, I mean, it's rare. I shouldn't say never. It is rare that you hear particularly greys or mantis beings describing anger. It's always indifference. Well, it's not actually... It doesn't sound like it's doing anything intentionally. It's almost like it's just a reflection of its... The level of power that it, it possesses. Well, it's innermost quality as a being. Right. Yeah. Right? Uh, it's like people, when they're around higher beings, they instantly feel, you know, love and, you know, serenity and... Like Sai Baba. Compassion. <laughs> well, not that kind of being. But, you know, they, they feel this these higher things. When they're around, when he's around this darker entity, it's the complete opposite by the sounds of it. So he kind of blacks out. The regression's finished. Now they try and continue it. Shirley tries to get him into a deeper, calmer state, but he's pretty shaken up and he tries, but he can't remember anymore. So she basically says, All right, let's move on to something else that happened later that winter. Is there anything else that happened that you remember? And he suddenly recalls moving through this dimly lit curving hallway and he can't really see any lights. It's almost like he's in some kind of cave or something. You can't really see where the passage is going because it's twisting and turning so much. And he knows that there's an entourage of greys with him, both tall and short. There's two tall ones and at least four of the short ones. And they're on a mission. They're moving really fast through these kind of caverns. And a moment later, the hallway empties into this big round room and he's ushered in and there's this beam of light coming down onto this thick metal chair. Now he's ushered towards the chair. Again, he doesn't want to do it, but he's got no choice. And this is when he sees another entity standing in the shadows behind this chair. And this is not a grey. This is something completely different. It stood easily seven feet tall. It wore a long indigo robe with a tall collar and was clearly in command of the situation. He said this insect-like face was longer than the greys and its eyes every bit as large, and they were fiercely predatory. It looked like a giant praying mantis and had a presence to it that was awesome and terrible. This thing was nasty. He said, I wanted to pause, but felt that looking at this thing was worse than sitting in front of him and looking in the other direction. So he just got in this metal chair. And... He almost felt like he he was in trouble and he was going to see the principal. Like he was, you know, a kid and he did something naughty at school and he had to go and see the go to the head office. Is this implying though that he feels like he's some type of, of student of these beings? Well, it, it telepathically starts communicating to him that they're upset that he's become increasingly more resistant to them and defiant. He said that they'd had such high hopes for me and were disappointed with my lack of progress in what he referred to as some sort of program, whatever that may have been. The mantis recommended that I should stop questioning and just go along with what was asked of me. And by doing this, I would learn in proper time the rationale for everything and benefit greatly from the experience. And it wasn't asking for a promise. It was like, we're going to be watching you and you need to do what you're told. Now, his vision starts to grow hazy and everything becomes whitewashed and 
he kind of fades out of consciousness and that's all he can remember. And Shirley's like, well, tell me more about the program. Like, what was this about? And he says it was some kind of lifelong education that was formulated for him, but exactly what the purpose was, he couldn't tell. Uh, and he got the impression that he was meant to feel privileged by their getting their attention. But that description of the mantis entity, that's why I brought up this this story, this tabloid story of this guy saying, I felt like I was a fly about to be eaten by a spider. It was predatory. And that's exactly what Bill is saying here in this experience. And that echoes the yes. experiences of other abductees who encounter these beings. And he came out of this saying, there's clearly a hierarchy. Like the little guys are just the worker drones, the taller ones are more in charge, but at the top of the management table... It's the insectoids. The CEOs of aliens are these creepy praying mantises. Have you ever heard of stories of reptilians being involved with praying mantises or just the greys? Yeah, I was just thinking about it. I don't know. No, the reptilians are kind of like hired help. They're like contractors. They come in and renovate your bathroom. Right. And they're They're not really in charge. Yeah, they can. I guess you could hire them for security. Yeah, well, they're big enough. They're just dumb muscle, basically, like Bigfoot. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And after this, the the phone calls start, all the weird phone calls. So he tells this story of, because at this point he was like, okay, I'm I'm staying up as long as I can. He'd finished high school by this next story. And he was just staying up to like four in the morning, five in the morning until the sun came up and then going to bed because he just didn't want to deal with any of this. But previously, when he was younger, I mean, they got him during the day. So that's kind of a pointless exercise anyway. Yeah, but again, he just, I mean, what, what, what choice do you have? You, you've got to try something. He was so terrified by what was happening. But he he would work on sketches for cars. He was interested in automotive design. He would stay up late doing these car sketches. But there was one night... At about 3 a.m., he gets this horrible feeling that is being watched and he's in the kitchen of his parents' house and just this horrible, oppressive feeling just comes over the house and there's weird creaking sounds going on and just this feeling of being watched just gets heavier and heavier. There's this weird, dense feeling hanging in the air. It's the best way he can describe it. And it, it goes on for like 40, 50 minutes and he just feels like something's about to happen and he eventually backs into the corner of the kitchen with his wall, his back to the wall so he can see both entrances to the kitchen because he feels like this is it. And he's so scared, he eventually says out loud, all right, all right, I don't want to see you, but if you call the telephone, I'll talk to you. And he waits. Nothing happens for about three minutes and five minutes, bring, bring, stop. There's one ring of the telephone and that's it. Now he's frozen in fear. He's absolutely freaked out. It takes him a few minutes before he finally gets the courage to walk over and pick up the phone and there's nothing. There's just a dial tone on the other end. It's just like, the call is coming from in the house. <laughs> it's like, hello, this is marketing 101. I'm trying to say. <laughs> no, it's, it's just nothing. And as soon as he picks up the phone, this oppressive feeling leaves the house. Uh, he suddenly feels tired, like it's time to go to bed, and he goes to bed. And and days after this, he's kicking himself. He's like, I should have answered the phone quicker because it took him like nearly five minutes to actually go and pick up the phone. Now, it, almost exactly a year later, it's uh, a humid, you know, summer night, and again he's at the kitchen table sketching away, and that feeling comes back. That horrible feeling starts creeping up on him. 
and he looks at the clock. It's already past 3 a.m., and the static in the air is back, the this creaking sounds throughout the house, the feeling of being watched, and he's like, oh, shit, here we go again. And he gets out of his chair when it gets really oppressive and backs into that same corner of the kitchen. And after about 15 minutes of working up the courage to do so, he, he says it again. He says out loud, look, if something's here, I would really prefer not to see you, but if you call me, I'll answer the phone. And as soon as he says this out loud, ring, 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 it just immediately rings. Again, just one ring. He bolts for the phone and picks it up. Hello? Nothing. Dial tone. Slowly he steps away from the phone and that feeling of a presence starts to fade again. Now, at this point, his dog starts to whine like it needs to go out and pee. So because the oppressive feeling is gone, he's like, fine, he takes the dog out to pee out the front. And uh, when the dog's out in the front yard, he looks up in the sky and he notices, notices there's this small single cloud in a cloudless sky. And it's quite windy and this cloud is not moving. Camouflage. And it's perfectly, it's a perfectly disc-shaped cloud. And as he's watching it, it starts to drift off rapidly against the wind. And in less than 30 seconds, it's vanished into the night. So obviously not just a cloud. So that's kind of where he wraps it for the first series of events from his first book. This is up to the age of 19. And remember, there's going to be three. So the second one is from the ages of 19 to 25. And he said that's when it really started to ramp up in his college years. Uh, the, The first thing that happens to him is so bizarre because he finds himself walking alone on this country road in the middle of the night and he, he can feel his feet crunching the snow as he's walking. The sky's really dark and he's not seeing the suburbs that he's used to. Uh, and there's this bitter cold wind that's kind of whipping against him. And he's not really dressed for this weather either. He's, and this deep chill starts coming over him. And he starts to think about, oh, I, I need to find some shelter to get out of this cold. And that's when it hits him, where the hell am I? What am I doing here? Like he's... He's got no idea how he found himself in this strange place in the middle of this snowstorm. You mean it's like he's just come to? Yeah, it's like he's just woken up. And he says, I I must have been walking for some time, but I'm not sure where I was or even why I was there. Nothing looked familiar, and I couldn't remember back to even a few minutes prior. So he starts to get nervous. Like, imagine how terrifying this would be. Yeah, you'd be horrified. Dropped in the middle of nowhere with no memory. But he just convinced himself that his memory was going to snap back into place at any second. But up ahead on the right, he spots this pickup truck sticking out of the trees. And he realizes, oh, I'm coming up to a cabin or to a house. And this small gray house becomes visible on the other side of the truck. The house lights are all off and he doesn't recognize the place. But he thinks maybe I can knock on the door and someone can help me get get my bearings, give me directions or something. But the house isn't comforting at all. Like the house looks pretty terrifying because both the house and the truck are completely covered in snow. So no one's been in or out in a while. He's got no idea what time it is. And he starts to trudge past this truck and he suddenly feels this sharp stare coming from the driveway and stops dead in his tracks. And he turns his head in that direction and there's this small grey standing there glaring at him. Ew, that's unsettling. And for this brief moment, he says, 
as their eyes lock, its eyes start flaring up this bright white and it starts searing his soul. With what? Like light, some beam like, out of it? it? Yeah, like light. And he starts shrieking in pain and he says not with his mouth, somehow with every atom of his being, he, this furious cocktail of negative emotions, fear and sorrow and anger and horror and disgust and pain and jealousy and guilt burst out of him and it's almost like this entity is dissolving him. It's destroying him with its eyes. It's like an ego death kind of thing. Yeah, it's like he's destroyed. And instantly he finds himself back in his bed at home in broad daylight, completely covered in sweat, like absolutely drenched in sweat. He looks over at the clock. It's 2 p.m. And he hears this little knock at his bedroom door. His, uh, his mother walks in and just drops a letter on his chest and just walks out. And the whole time he's just... In his head, he's, oh, the grey, the grey, the creature, the creature, the creature. And he keeps repeating in his mind, the creature, the creature, thinking about these eyes. What the hell just happened, he says. I'm in bed, it's daytime, but a few moments ago, it was night. I was walking through the snow. What the hell's going on? It wasn't like a dream at all. It was 100% real. Uh, and he, he's wondering if he's dead because he feels like he's been disintegrated by this grey. So after a few minutes of trying to figure out what the hell's going on? He starts to rewind his day and he's like, hang on a second, it's Monday. I came home from my college class and I took a nap 15 minutes ago. It must have been a dream. And then he starts to read the letter that his mum dropped on his chest. And it's a letter from his girlfriend of six months, Vicky. And Vicky's like, okay, Billy, we had an amazing time together, but I need to find myself now. So uh, we're breaking up. Love, Vicky. And immediately this thought drives into his head, this external voice says, call the girl. Now, it's like an imperative thing he has to do. It's some kind of mission. And his fingers fumbling while he's dialing Vicky's number. And the whole time he's just the creature, the creature, the eyes, the creature's eyes, the creature, the creature. And this voice answers, hello. Yes, it's, he says. And he's just thinking, the creature, the creature. Is this Bill? Uh, yes, the creature, the creature's eyes, the creature's eyes. He's not saying it, he's just thinking it. Uh, did you read my letter? And he's like, yes, the creature, the creature, the creature. And she basically apologizes because she sent the letter on Friday, but then they hang up, they hung out on the weekend and she realizes she doesn't want to break up with him now and he should totally come over so they can make up. <laughs> and she just goes on this tangent of how she made a big mistake, blah, 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 blah. And he's, he's just on the phone going, yeah, the creature, the creature, the creature, the eyes, the eyes. Yeah, the creature, the creature, the eyes. Just not listening to a word she's saying. He eventually agrees to go over there at seven o'clock, you know, just not thinking about it at all. And as he's driving over to her house that night, he says, I should have actually been thinking about how awkward it was that she had sent the letter on Friday and then we'd spent Saturday and Sunday together and she never mentioned anything about it. Did it was, the aliens write the letter? <laughs> it was just acting like it was totally normal. So by the time he gets to her house, he's kind of, his mind's going back to normal. He's not thinking about this creature that destroyed him in this dream. But when he sees her, he doesn't really know what to say and they didn't really say much. It's almost like they're already moving past the matter of the letter she had sent and something was now kind of unresolved in their relationship. And his mind kept wandering back to that country road with the flash of that creature's eyes. And he believed that there was some kind of deep meaning to this dreadful encounter. 
from that night and it was going to reveal itself soon. So after this, he notes there's a friend of his and his friends that were hanging out with him, they occasionally saw UFOs when they were in his presence. Um, And after seeing the UFOs, some of his friends started to have strange experiences as well. Like his friend Kyle, they were at a sleepover with Bill and there's like five, you know, five friends at this guy's house. And Kyle, his friend, was closest to the door. Uh, and Kyle said in the middle of the night, this strange thing came in the room and crawled on top of his sleeping bag. What was it? We couldn't see it because it was so dark. It was like a really dark room. And this thing kind of crept up on his sleeping bag. And he says he got a sense that it was a male, but he wasn't sure. And this thing basically got cried up to his face and said, Bill? And Kyle's like, uh, no. And I was like, <laughs> crawled off him. <laughs> it crawled off him. And that was it. There was no other sound. There was no other movement. movement. Sorry. Nothing. Nothing happened. No other whispering in the room. Nothing. But clearly it was wanting to go for Bill. It wanted Bill. And when he woke up in the morning, he's like, guys, who was crawling on me last night asking for Bill? And everyone's like, oh. No one had any weird dreams. No one had any experiences. No one knew what the hell was going on. It was just like... He almost got taken because they thought he was Bill. But okay, why would they like? Why would they know who they're going for? And then why would it ask again? Someone first time on the job, maybe. Maybe, maybe they. Yeah. This is when they hired a reptilian. <laughs> yeah, outsourcing the, team. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the slimy nature of it, definitely reptilian. But after this happened, all this weird shit started happening to Kyle. So one evening after the sun had gone down, Kyle woke from this nap at his girlfriend's house to see a portal hanging in the air right beside his bed. And through this point, he looks through this portal and he can see this wall and it's got all these electronics on it that he doesn't recognise. It looks like some kind of futurism wall. Uh, And he watches as this small bony hand reaches out from one corner of the rectangular portal. Now... He a grey or just... He couldn't see what the hand was attached to. All he saw was this bony hand come out and he's trying to move away. He's like, ah, but he realises he's paralysed. Then this bright light bathes the room uh, through the outside window as something was rising up outside the house and into the sky. Then he could move again and the portal was gone. And this is all after some creepy thing crawled on his sleeping bag one night because he was hanging out with his friend Bill, who has all these abduction experiences. Another night, a couple of years later, Kyle is staying uh, the night on a different girlfriend's couch in the basement while she slept in her room because, you know, they're at their parents' house. Um, And he he, he wakes up to see two slim-figured individuals, barely visible in the darkness, and they're watching him intently. Now... All he could really ascertain, the only details he could get, is that they appeared to be Asian. One was a taller female and the other was a shorter male and he quickly fell back to sleep. Now, this could be aliens because, you know, we've heard descriptions of Asiatic-looking aliens, but also maybe his girlfriend was Asian and this was the parents just checking him out at like three in the morning. <laughs> I don't I know like, what's creepier. I like that version. Like <laughs> the, the mum and dad are just evaluating who their daughter is sleeping with. Yeah, but we don't know that information, so that's, yeah. I no. don't like him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, give him a chance. No. <laughs> that's how I, that was what I that, went through oh, with my I, wife. I'm sure, yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
he had also had a vivid dream of the two of them soaring above his home, which he felt was real. So it's weird how this activity rubs off on other people that are around, even though they might not have anything to do with it. Just being in proximity of someone who is regularly taken seems to have an effect on your life. So be careful who you hang out with. But that's what we've been talking about recently, this contagion effect that comes from anyone that interacts with this paranormal. It starts to spread out. And it's not just paranormal. It's anything that has this um, esoteric kind of feel to it. It seems like people just get engulfed by it. And it acts like this whirlpool because everything else around you gets engulfed by it as well. Mm. Now, Kyle comes into this story again because he turns out to be one of Bill's loyal friends, he essentially turns up to Bill's doorstep one day and says, look, uh, I know you're not dating Vicky anymore because they'd broken up like six months earlier. He says, look, I just need to tell you that she's a hoa. <laughs> and uh, she was sleeping with our friends Alex and James the whole time you were with her. He's just, um, like, he's just like, what? What kind of a friend is that, though, that you don't tell him while it's happening? That's the thing. He's like, why did no one tell me? And he went the rounds to all his friends Scumbag. and said, why didn't you tell me Vicky was sleeping with Alex and James? And they're like, oh, I didn't really want to be the one to break bad news. Like, Dude, you need new friends. Definitely. Starters. Uh, but basically, this was kind of a massive betrayal, not only from Vicky, but from these two friends of his who he was reasonably close with. You know, this was crushing. And he thought, I'm just going to let this go. I'm not going to let this ruin my life. I'm just going to focus on the relationship I have with this new girl I'm seeing. Uh, and then that girl informed him that she'd gotten back with her ex-boyfriend and she was dumping him. This is all in like two days. Is this though just bad luck or is something interfering? The next week, he says, my parents tell me they're divorcing and selling the house we lived in and the house I'd grown up in. And he's like, the my entire emotional support system was being destroyed in the course of two weeks. I'd lost my family home. My family was coming apart. My friends, my love life was destroyed. It's like, it was, it was like him down. the apocalypse. Yep. And then he said, on top of this, my connection to the Catholic church was next. So he said, the church had always taught, taught me my whole life about good and evil, heaven and hell, reward and punishment. Do you get diddled? Well, no, no, no. He, he was at college. And a college professor introduced him to a class on determinism. What is determinism? I haven't heard of that. You know, the idea that uh, everything is already, uh, like the whole universe is a set of gears running. and every, Fate. Everything's basically all, already preset and everything's going to run on this determinative outcome. There's yeah. nothing you can do about it. There's no, there's no free will. You know, there's no free consciousness. Everything's just running on these, uh, it's like a big machine running its course. And he was seduced by this idea and thought, you know, imagine, you know, losing your concept of good and evil and, and right and wrong and heaven and hell. And he's basically like, oh, what's the point, man? Fuck I've got no control over it. Fuck everything. Yeah. It's, he just basically became that guy. Uh, and this was so much stress building up from all these different sources. This correlation came into his mind of that experience of being in the snow, coming across that house, and this entity destroying him through this emotional release. He said, I wondered if it was possible that what I went through in that experience was the entities alerting me to this point in my life when everything was going to fall apart. 
was that a stretch? Is that too crazy? He says, you know, maybe that made sense, maybe it didn't, but I needed something to anchor me to reality, he said. So he actually mentally asked the aliens to support him. So they're making him dependent. Yeah, it's like he lost everything that he relied on. Now he's asking the aliens to be his his religion, his family, his friends. They've got him. And after this, he wakes up in his bed because his parents, you know, the house is for sale. He's still in the same home. It's middle of the night and there's this girl standing beside his bed. And as soon as his eyes adjust, he realized there's three greys standing a few feet behind this girl. And they're all silently staring at him. Now, for some reason, he's not afraid. And it's he gets the sense that they're waiting for him to initiate something. Now, he sits up in bed and he observes this girl and she looks like a teenager. Her skin is super pale and she's got this light-coloured straw-like hair. But the most prominent feature of her face is these crazy large dark blue eyes. Slightly bigger than a normal person's, but you know, nowhere near as large as a grey's eyes. And she has this timid expression and posture and she's completely naked. And he's basically like, oh good, they've brought me a hybrid teenager. Now, he doesn't get the impression that he's meant to sleep with her. Then what's he supposed to do? He doesn't quite know. They're, they're expecting him to do something. So after this awkward silence where everyone's just like standing there. <laughs> Can I help you? With this naked half alien in the room. Uh, he says, what's her name? And they all reply jointly, all telepathically. The greys say, yes, what's her name? And he realizes, am I supposed to name this hideous thing in front of me? So he thinks of the most innocent, flattering name he can give this freak. So he's like, um, Angel. Oh. And they all, say, they all say in unison, yes, Angel. Yes, Angel. The four of them shift sideways in unison and disappear through the wall. <laughs> Why do they always just make it so awkward and unusual and complicated? Because they're not human. Yeah, they just can't grasp what humanity is. Two years later, he finds himself standing in a room he's come to know as the activity room. It's this large, empty, metallic, round room with a high ceiling. And there's this observation deck that goes all the way around. And you can see entities up top looking down. It's like almost like an operating theatre from the 1800s right, spectators seeing what's going on down below. And he's watching as this handful of greys are looking down below and he's in the middle of this room and he sees Angel walk in. Now, this is a few years on. So she's she's looking about five years older, even though it's only two years. And she's got a way more adult figure. And he stands in the middle of the room as she very confidently walks with this cat, like, catwalk type walk, model walk, and makes deep eye contact with him. She walks right up to him, again, totally nude, and starts massaging his temples. <laughs> See, no one could see that you just dropped your hair down <laughs> below the desk. and then I'm Get like, your mind no. out of the, What kind of show is this, Why Aaron? did you drop your hair down? I was scratching my arm. Right, okay. Yep. Uh, and he hears this telepathic comment from the observation suite above. And apparently there's these greys. It's kind of like those two old men from the Muppets. One of them says, this will get the blood flowing. What? 
Yeah, so that was what was communicated. This will get the blood flowing, like the massaging of the temples. He immediately loses consciousness. You loser, you missed a chance. I think he actually probably is lucky that he got out of it. Now he gets, nothing happens. He he gets regressed again because this is a real memory. This isn't some regression. This is just a solid memory. He goes to Shirley. She's like, oh, let's get to the bottom of this. Nothing. They couldn't recall anything from this. This and he, he claims that nothing happened. Bullshit. <laughs> I don't believe it for a second. There's no way she's walking in naked, starts rubbing his temples, and she's walking all seductively. And the <laughs> the observation team up top is like, this'll get the blood flowing. Whoa, whoa. And then nothing happens. Come on. What do you think he just can't recall or he's deliberately keeping it out of the the story? A little from Maybe column he's A, embarrassed? A from column B. <laughs> is that why? Like <laughs> he's embarrassed. He was it, like, was like, it was like late. It was like, you know, the last kind of when the lights come on at the club, but he was just like, <laughs> eh. It was over in five seconds and everyone in the observation deck was like, boom. <laughs> <laughs> and this alarm just like, mur, 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 mur. it's like the Death Star exploding. <laughs> he just gets kicked out of the program. <laughs> That's why they're disappointed. <laughs> And the mantis is like, <laughs> the mantis is just staring at him because it's so disappointed. <laughs> its bull has failed to perform. So, yeah, he claims nothing happened. Um, and, you know, he, he admittedly says in the book, like, obviously, a lot of these encounters with these naked hybrid women result in something else. But I don't feel I've had that experience. I don't feel like I have hybrid children or anything like that. Nothing could be revealed in hypnotic regressions. He has a bunch of other experiences, like uh, this alien lands in his backyard holding a silver book, and he's kind of transfixed and, and trying to escape, and the alien's like, you must read this book, you must read it, and then he passes out, and we never get to learn what the book was or what was in it. Uh, he starts to hear... So eventually he goes... This is kind of the, the way this timeline works is there's a point where he goes to MUFON and he starts talking about his experiences to other people um, and especially doing hypnotic regressions. And as soon as he does this, the phone activity, none of that paranormal stuff is happening. He starts to feel like his phone is either being tapped or recorded because there was a certain time where he was talking to his friend uh, on the phone and it was almost like an accident where part of the conversation from a minute prior started to play back through the line. Yeah, so it is being recorded. It's not just like simple jitter or something. No, it's not. He says it couldn't have been an echo because it was like a minute prior. I had said these things and it was like they made a mistake and it was playing down the line again. Now, there was shortly after this there was a point where his dad was expecting a call because he'd gone for a job interview and he tells his dad, his dad calls and he says, look, dad, I, you know, I'm here by myself. No one's answered the phone and, and no one's called. And as soon as he hung up the phone with his dad, he's like, he has this weird feeling come over him that I shouldn't have said that. Like for some reason, he felt like saying I'm home alone exposed him. Like yep. someone was listening. And a few minutes after saying this, he goes and sits back down on the couch, but the phone rings again. And when he answers it, it's dead silence. There's uh, several seconds of him saying hello and he hangs up, but then there's this weird static electricity in the air, like something's going on. Then immediately in the distance, he hears an approaching helicopter. 
Now, this isn't unusual because they have helicopters going over occasionally, but this one was getting surprisingly loud and close to the point where all the little trinkets on his mother's mantelpiece were like jingling up and down and the, the walls were shaking and the windows were shaking a little bit. And he's like, is this thing about to crash into our house? So he goes outside kind of in fear of his life and hovering directly over the house at low altitude is a black unmarked Bell UH-1 helicopter. This is the Jim Keith stuff. Remember the black helicopters over America and the octopus? Yeah. Remember that group he was talking about? Yeah. Connected, though, with extraterrestrials. Well, this thing, he's like, he goes out and he's staring, and the pilot's just staring at him. And as soon as he went out and observed it, it basically pulled out, uh, slowly climbed and headed east, and he watched it as it, you know, went off into the distance. And... He calls Shirley and she's like, I've had several of these things hover over my house. So what he thinks happened was as soon as he went to MUFON and maybe it was them or maybe getting in touch with Shirley because she's had her own experiences, he was then monitored. Yes, that's exactly what's going on. His communications were monitored. He was identified as an abductee. Oh, that's why he He, heard the recording. His phone's tapped. Yeah. They want to know what he's talking about. They want to know what's going on with him. So this idea that the the powers that be have no interest in this phenomenon, I think is a little bit silly. Uh, we hear a lot of this talk all the time. There's never any conclusive proof, but no. it's, it's, it seems reasonable that whoever's looking after this problem of extraterrestrials would also be wanting to look very closely at abductees. What I don't understand is, though, why send a black unmarked, unmarked helicopter to oh, hover yes. over someone's roof. It also makes no sense at all. <laughs> it makes no because sense. If you it's wanting, not very covert. Yeah, you want to be covert and clandestine. Yeah. You don't put a black helicopter over someone's house causing the walls to shake. No, and this is why we've often speculated that it's nothing. It's not a human agency doing this at all. It, it's something connected yeah. with them. So eventually he gets convinced by his friends to go on a ski trip. And it's kind of an awkward trip because it's all these friends that he used to go to college and school with. And they don't tell him until the last moment, but Vicky's there with her new husband. Remember Vicky who cheated on him with his other friends? And he tries to make it amicable, but the whole trip's a disaster because the cabin that they rented out wasn't big enough. uh, And he had to sleep in the bathtub. And Vicky and her husband's bedroom was on the opposite side of that wall. And it was very. Oh, well, that's not awkward at all. Thin wall. It was just, it was an absolute nightmare. And that, that night, he kind of crawls into his bathtub bed and he can hear her and her weird husband giggling and flirting on the other side of the wall until they eventually start to have sex and it's really loud and obnoxious. And here he is, he's like, I'm in a freaking bathtub on this ski trip in the middle of the night and my ex-girlfriend who was like the centre of my whole world breaking down is now banging her horrible husband and he was this really fat, violent guy. It was just, the the whole thing was just like the universe making it so bad, it was funny. Yeah, it seems like it's almost tormenting him. It was like this comedy of misery and he just can't help himself and he starts to snicker and then this turns into a chuckle and then he just loses it. He's laughing uncontrollably with tears streaming down his face. And it's almost as if this heavy weight that's held him down for years is is slowly lifting off his chest. And he feels actual joy and, and this uh, ecstasy surging through him as if he's laughing in the face of all this misery. He's actually letting it go. 
and he feels completely energized, so much that he leaps up out of the bathtub, grabs his boots, puts on a light coat, and goes out the front door and into the snowy night. And he keeps running and laughing down the snow-covered dirt road, and he's just... He's lost it, though. He's just like... But it's this moment of, like, fuck it. Yeah. Like, he doesn't care anymore about how horrible things are. He's just taking it lightly. It's this real kind of enlightening experience where he's that feeling of, oh, fuck this, I'm a victim. That's all gone. Yeah. He's just kind of, screw it. I'm going to take it all head on and laugh in the face of misery. And as he is doing this, he's like, oh, deja vu. Because he realizes that that snowy road, that rural road that he's walking down seems familiar. And then it hits him when he sees the back of that truck poking out of the driveway and that house to the right. Oh, he's back there again. It's the exact same scene. Covered with snow? Yeah, it's all covered in snow from that experience four years ago. And he gets closer and closer and his heart starts beating faster and he gets to that driveway where he saw that grey. And he turns and there's nothing. Now, he felt as if he was standing in two times, separated by years, but these two times were connected. And it was electrifying, he said. He said, I felt as good at that moment as I'd felt bad during the experience four years prior. This place was ground zero of my heart's demise and rebirth, and I was back again and fully alive. He said, it appeared the beings knew four years earlier that a chain of events had been set in motion at that time that would eventually lead to this moment of resolution on this trip. So he goes back to the cabin, a changed human being. He said everyone was snoring peacefully and he walked back inside and it was just, he was smiling. And he had the great, even though he slept in a bathtub, he had the greatest sleep he's had in 20 years. And it totally changed his outlook on life and totally changed his experience. And he actually starts dating again. He enters the world of dating again. He meets this new girlfriend named Tammy. He's like, finally, you know, my life's getting back on track. I can face all this stuff head on. He's got new confidence. He's like a new man. And this new girl's energetic, graceful, really sweet. And they started going out and it kept progressing. Now he says it gets to a point when you're someone like him where you're in a relationship and you have to tell the person what's going on. You've got to sit him down and say, I'm an abductee. Yeah, that's going to be difficult. And the reason you have to tell them is because they might be involved in an experience. Mm. And, and if or they wake up and they find some slithery thing lying on top of them going, <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah, it's, or worse. And he says, look, it's a balancing act because if you tell them too soon, they'll obviously be scared off. They'll think you're crazy. But if you wait too long, they might get abducted be, themselves. Yeah, and they'll be angry about it. Uh, timing is everything he said. So they went on this, this uh, hike together and they had a wonderful day and it was so beautiful out that they didn't want to go home. So they got this blanket out and were kind of cuddling in this blanket under the stars. And they're lying down embracing each other, trying to name the, name the constellations. And eventually there was this darkness that came over the, the area. Like they're on top of this hillside, but it was surrounded by woods. And the woods suddenly hushed. The Oz effect kicks in, all the insects stop, everything goes silent. And this is followed by the sound of footsteps crunching through the leaves, approaching them. Now, they quickly leapt up and, and hurried up further away from this sound to the center of this hill they were on and looked back at the trees, but they couldn't see anything. The footsteps had stopped 
and the noises had returned to the woods. And they wait nervously for a few minutes and they tried to kind of pass the time by making some small talk. And Tammy, his, his new girlfriend, pointed out the Big Dipper and he says, no, that's actually the Little Dipper. And he starts to talk about this astronomy class he's in and then the conversation segues into college textbooks and how expensive they are. And after that, they decided to think, well, they thought, well, the sound's gone, maybe it was nothing, and they just laid back down on the blanket. And after a few minutes, though, again, the park becomes eerily quiet. Silence and footsteps start to approach. And they get up and move away to the centre of the hill and they're terrified, but the footsteps stop and Tammy looks up at the Big Dipper to pass the time and he says, no, that's the Little Dipper. And he tells her about his astronomy class and then they lament about the price of college textbooks. And somehow he has this sense of deja vu as they're talking about this, but then they just lie back down in the blanket and, and start looking at the stars again. And then the woods go quiet. And they hear these footsteps approaching and they get scared. So they quickly run away to the center of the hill and the footsteps stop. So then to make small talk, Tammy points up to the sky and says, look, there's the Big Dipper. And he says, no, it's the Little Dipper. And then they, he tells her about his astronomy class and then they lament about the cost of textbooks. And then they lie back down on the blanket again. What the hell is going on? <laughs> and eventually he hits in his mind. He's like, I'm stuck in a fucking time loop. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even like this girl that much. <laughs> this is like Groundhog five minutes and he's stuck in this time loop and he can't break out of it. And just as he's having this thought and he says to Tammy, he's like, have we done this before? Because I feel like you've pointed out the Big Dipper incorrectly about 50 times. As soon as he, he has this kind of wake up moment that we're stuck in this time loop Everything freezes. He freezes in mid-sentence. Tammy is frozen. She can still move her eyes, but and so can he, but they just cannot move a muscle. And they hear those footsteps again. And out of the forest walks three small greys. They're walking directly towards Tammy. And they start surrounding her and inspecting her up and down. Now, Bill says he's terrified and he's just regretting that they didn't leave earlier. He's like, how was I so stupid? I didn't see this coming. The greys then begin to telepathically communicate to one another. And they're saying things like, mm, not her. Mm, no, no way. She's no good. Why? She's no good for our boy. She's not the one. Mm, 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 mm. Nope. Nope, 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 nope. He can hear their telepathic chatter. And they're just like, no way. There's no way. She is not the one. This is not going to happen. And after a few minutes, they kind of make up their minds and then they casually stroll back to the hill and Tammy can move again. And he could hear them telepathically the whole time trashing his girlfriend. <laughs> he starts to wonder, could Tammy hear it as well? Because she wasn't like out of it. She was moving her eyeballs in fear. And as soon as uh, they had left and they could move again, She's they just ran to the car. like, and, and immediately, as soon as they got to the car, they speed away, and she's like, don't take me home, don't take me home, let's just do something else, anything else. So they end up going to Walmart and just looking at toothbrushes for 20 minutes just to calm down and get some sense of normalcy. And he ends up taking her to her house and dropping her off. He said, we didn't speak for two days when she called and, and finally asked me to please uh, come over and talk. Immediately upon arrival, she broke up with me, he said. 
Well, probably because she heard them bashing her. Yeah. He says, we didn't discuss the events in the park and we would never discuss them ever again. Uh, and I never told her what we went through had anything to do with me. Like, he never opened up about his experiences, but he suspects she knew it had everything to do with him. And that's that's where it ends for the, the second story. Like, there's a third book coming where apparently all right. of this culminates to his his current life and, and what their plans for him eventually were. Uh, but it gets to the point where they're obviously interfering with his life, you know, since he was two. Yeah, absolutely. But now they're choosing who he can be with, whether the, his girlfriend cuts their standards What's their ultimate goal? Because yeah. it doesn't sound like, even though there was the implication that it doesn't sound like it's anything to do with the hybrid program or, you know, that I don't know why they're doing what they're doing. Well, he failed miserably in the hybrid program. Yeah. He had his chance. I mean, yeah, it's tough to perform when there's a crowd. But... But we've all been there. You just do what you need to do. <laughs> I don't think we've all woken up <laughs> inside some weird Come alien on. spaceship in we're, some 19th century doctor's viewing we've room. All, we've all been there. There's no blame in the moment. Oh, I see what you're saying. Oh, okay, well, maybe, perhaps. Speak for yourself. <laughs> I mean, it's not like you have a choice. Well, do you, though? I mean, they, although they do seem to be able to influence you and control you in any way that they want. Yeah, I just, no, the gas came in. I couldn't do anything. I, did, I didn't have a choice. I had to, I had to do it. <laughs> no, of course I'm joking. You always have a choice. Well, maybe you don't, though. I mean, maybe there is something more sinister going on here, but I'm just at a loss to understand like the, the lifetime of interaction, but for what purpose? It doesn't seem like it's achieving anything. It doesn't seem, it just seems like it's just playing games. Well, it's interesting towards the end of the book. with him. Towards the end of the book, he says, look, we've had all these abductees over the years say similar things to what I'm saying. He's like, I'm not unaware of other people's reports. And, you know, they talk about similar things to me and that they're always told similar things that they're part of some program and it's all going to be revealed soon. And they're, they're downloading yeah. information that yes. they can't make sense of now, but eventually it's going to, it's all going to make sense and it's going to unlock in their consciousness. And he's like, then they die. Tons of these abductees, they've, they've told this story. No, no, they just, just, they just pass away. Yeah. Like they've, so they've been either, telling these stories from the 60s and 70s. They've, they've, you know, how yeah. many abductees have died yeah. with this idea that they've been seeded this knowledge and then one day it's going to be unlocked for this grand event? Yeah. And he's like, I don't, he doesn't really buy it. Well, they're either lying, which I don't think is... I mean, some people obviously, but I just don't think everyone's lying. Uh, the other possibility is, is that they're not telling the truth. It's like, think about it. Like back in the 50s and 60s, when this kind of stuff was starting with the contactees, it was always nuclear war. And, and this has kind of changed now into this, you know, information for this coming intergalactic wave or whatever, you know, this is the description that's often given. Mm. It's just like, it's all garbage. It's the same beings. They just keep on throwing different crap at us to subdue us, to make people think that they're important, but they're just simply being utilized for some experiment mm. that I can't even begin to imagine how sinister it is. So I am looking forward to book three. Uh, hopefully it comes out this year, maybe next year. But he does give a funny anecdote and a warning to anyone who's had experiences to basically never get involved in any TV shows. Why? He says there's some good ones, but most of them, they're just, you just get taken advantage of. And he gives this anecdote. There's a couple he went on, but there's one in particular where it was a pilot for a new show about abductions. And he was, he agreed to be hypnotically regressed for the show. And 
Well, the day of the filming, he went and met the uh, hypnotist that they brought in, the therapist. And he had a, he was a nice enough guy and he had a chat to this guy um, before they started filming. And he says to this guy, oh, how much experience do you have with alien abductees? And this guy just said, none. I'm, I have no idea about the topic. I've, I've never done this before. Uh, and probably not the right person. Then. Yeah, Bill kind of said, you know, I don't know if I'm really comfortable with that. Like you should at least have some understanding of what you're doing. And this guy just said, oh, no, 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 that makes me way more objective. Trust me. And this guy had worked with uh, veterans who had PTSD. So he was coming from that angle. He's like, you've got PTSD. I know how to handle this. But he said the way this guy put him under was, you know, with Shirley, it would take like an hour. It's a very long, involved, you know, gentle process of taking him back and putting him in the, the circumstance of these horrible experiences. But this guy just basically got him to sit in a chair, he held out his palm and he said, lean forward and put your head in my palm. And Bill's like, uh, That's not how it works. Okay. So he leant forward and put his head in this guy's palm and this guy just goes, sleep! <laughs> and lifts his hand up and throw, throws Bill back into the chair. And Bill's like, I'm obviously not hypnotised. And the guy's like, you're under! <laughs> and then the, the filmmakers are like, action! <laughs> as, if he's, as if he's meant to be hypnotised. And he's just lying in the chair going, like, I'm obviously not hypnotised, but the camera's rolling, so I may as well just tell them some of my experiences. So he just starts to tell them stuff that he remembers. Oh, uh, but see, then I, I feel like that's a bit of uh, a lack of integrity there. Yeah, like, that's if- but then the, the thing was, you know, they were real experiences... Of course, but you should be like, no, I actually I can recall these consciously. I don't need to be under in your <laughs> yeah. fake hypnotism. Exactly. That you've done for television. Yeah, exactly. But after he'd done the filming, the next day the producers come to him and they say, um, we need you to we need to reshoot some of those abduction uh, recollection scenes, and this time we're going to need you to cry, and if you can, you know, you re- really want to get some kind of terrifying scream at some point. <laughs> no. So they basically treat you, he says, as an actor. They yeah, just they treat do. you as yeah, an actor they and they're trying to get a performance out of you. And he says of, of most of the shows he's gone on, that's what the producers think. And there was one show where he actually sat down and, and we was chatting to the director and, and sharing his experiences with the director and the director said, look, man, uh, I wasn't going to say anything, but you're actually, the whole reason we got you on the show is because you're our kooky guy. Like, you're meant to make this whole thing look crazy. Like, that's why we cast you. Yeah. And sitting here now listening to you tell your experiences, you're too credible. It's like, I can't actually use you. You're convincing. I actually wow. believe you. And that's, he's like, you, uh, these guys are snakes. Yeah, like, they're just, just very upsetting. And yeah, it's, but I'm not surprised. I mean, I think, I mean, our personal experience, you know, we've had a couple of TV producers contact us over the years. And it's like, I remember even one test screen we did, they didn't even record it properly. We had to even redo it. And it was like, what are we doing here? Yeah, well, we Why spent, are we doing this? We spent 30 or 40 minutes doing it. And then they got to the end and said, oh, sorry, nothing was recording. You have to do it all again. <laughs> so when we did it again, it, it was you know, just like, like uh, we were already yeah, so over it. Yeah, it like, <laughs> yeah. Nah, yeah we've been doing this show for a while and you know, it's about stuff. <laughs> we don't really give a fuck. <laughs> and you're like, and it was a really bad week too yeah. for recording. And you're just like eating a packet of chips or something. <laughs> we, we just didn't care by that point. And then that, for some reason, popcorn, I think. they never went for that. <laughs> <laughs> Bizarre. It was odd. I just don't know why. <laughs> no, it's very dangerous to go to this stuff. I don't know what to feel about this guy, though. I'm a bit reluctant. I mean, 
Actually, uh, we are running a little bit long, but I'll, I'll just mention a couple of these stories here because it kind of does tie in with his experiences. And you do find that people that look at astral projection, it actually seems to be a tool which is utilized by people that are interacting with aliens. They seem to know exactly how to pull people out of their bodies and utilize them. The difference is, is that you hear stories of where people are pulled from their bodies and they interact with beings that they think are guides or angels or but when you hear stories like this, it kind of has a feeling of like, is this person being tricked? Is it being, are they extraterrestrials or interdimensional beings that are trying to pretend to be good, but they're doing it for their own nefarious purposes? Well, the point where his life falls apart, where he loses his family, religion, girlfriend, everything, and then turns to them, then you start yes. to wonder, is, is there some kind of string pulling on their part Look, to, to put him in a vulnerable position where he has no choice yeah. but to ask for their help? Which is an invitation. Exactly. Going into what I was saying about the invitation, about, yeah, volunteering for the phenomena. It's like they trick you. They perform these these kind of things. And, you know, um, one story that I was reading described a guy that was, it was so typically uh, religious in some way. So a guy was uh, out of his body after having a serious accident. And he said that all of a sudden something grabbed hold of him under each arm and was whisking him up into the sky. And as he was whisked up into the sky, he looked around and he was like, It was angels. Like it was a couple of guys with flowing hair and long flowing white robes and they're underneath me and they're pulling me up. Chiseled jaws. Chiseled jaws. Yeah, like really hot. Chad jaws. Chad jaws just being pulled up into the (laughs) sky. And he's like- What were their teeth like? Oh, immaculate. Yeah. Like, yeah, Colgate grins being pulled all the way up into the sky. And he finally gets pulled up and it, while it has this religious connotation to it, it's more like an extraterrestrial in the sense that he gets pulled up up to this space and apparently these things are clawing at him as he's being pulled up. And these beings kind of just like, he asks, like he asks for for safety or to be protected from these things and they just cast this white cloud. They kind of go, and these things disappear, right? But as he's pulled up, he literally slams into something that stops. I don't know what it is. But <laughs> he something, hits the bottom he of the saucer. something. <laughs> and then he's told that it's not your time. Like they come, It's almost like this right. awkward thing as well where they're like, oh, uh, uh, it's not your time. And he's like, boom, back inside his body. Did it make like a metallic dunk? Look, I'm going to go with that. It's not said, but it has this feeling about it that it's like, no, this is like some type of abduction that's taking place, that it's being masked, though. It's made out that it's this wonderful thing, and it's not at all. Um, there's other reports, though, of where people describe quite commonly that they find themselves inside a guide room. So they're in an out-of-body experience, and immediately they're just flung into this space. So when they find themselves in this space, they're in this room, and there are guides waiting there to teach them. But while it sounds like teaching, it also sounds like a form of indoctrination, because these guides sit them down in essentially this classroom, this astral classroom, and start teaching them things. But it's never how to improve your life, how to, you know, like if it was religious, it'd be like, well, you'd think it'd be concepts like... Moral lessons. Moral lessons, yeah. Like, and helping others and putting others first and, you know, doing that. So, no, it's just like always this inane bullshit of like how, you know, you should be better at balancing your checkbook or that perhaps you should not be so nasty to people every now and again, but sometimes it's okay. It's like, (laughs) what? Like, it's just very, very strange. And... Now, to to finish it off, and I will go into more of these stories later, but there was this one particular story which ties in with spirit possession, and I thought that was quite outstanding, and it related to a young man that, uh, well, when I say young, he was middle-aged, a middle-aged guy, never had any health problems at all in his life, but apparently, 
unbeknownst to him, he had some type of heart murmur or heart issue that was going on, mitral valve reticulation or something. I don't know the exact term for it, but it's not good. Like it's not over the top, but you've got to be really careful with it if you have it when you go in for surgery. Now he needed to go in for dental surgery, oral surgery. And the doctor says to him, oh, you've got maybe a murmur there. Oh, you'll be fine. Don't worry about it. And so he's like, oh, okay, cool. So he goes to go under um, the, the, the surgery but when he rocks up that day, the doctor that was going to perform the surgery for him is away sick. And this new doctor comes in and he sees this new doctor and he's like, um, I feel a little bit uncomfortable about this. Like, where's, where's the other doctor? He's like, oh no, he's just done well. I'm going to perform the surgery today. So considering that he got the all clear from the previous doctor, he was like, okay, fine, let's do this. Put me under the anesthesia and I'll go in for the surgery. The guy seemingly dies. Like something goes wrong with his heart condition while he's put under. He has this NDE. But when he has this NDE, he finds himself indifferent to his body. He finds himself outside his body, standing in this operating room in this hospital. And he's looking around and he sees himself lying there while they're rushing around and they're trying to resuscitate him and trying to bring him back. But he turns and there are these two guides that are standing there. And he's looking at them. And they're like, we tried to warn you. And he's like, what do you, and he remembers. Like he'd previously had this out-of-body experience where these guides had shown up, but somehow had drifted from his memory. And these guides had said to him, don't go for that surgery. Like it's going to be really bad for you. There's something going on with your heart. You shouldn't go under any anesthesia at the moment. And obviously he didn't listen. Obviously the message somehow didn't translate into his waking life. And so he looks, he's like, well, then are you here to collect me? Are you going to take me to, to heaven or to the afterlife? I'm like, no, we're just monitoring the process. He's like, what process? And he turns around and he sees the new doctor that had replaced his previous doctor. The substitute, yeah. This doctor has like this aura around him and it's draining from this doctor into his lifeless body. There's like this stream of energy that's coming from the doctor feeding into this guy. And the guides are like, well, here's your astral life support. So we got him in because you didn't listen to us. We got rid of your other doctor. <laughs> this doctor has a huge amount of vital, you know, astral energy. Yeah. And so we got him in to do the surgery so that we could allow him to feed the energy to you, keep you on astral life support until we can get you back in your body. And he, he survives, now, obviously, because he recalls the experience. Exactly. He's suddenly back in his body in an extreme pain. He says it's like getting climbing back into a wet glove or a wet sack to get back in. So let me ask you, this replacement doctor that they brought in, who's essentially the astral blood bag, what does he get out of it? Nothing. He doesn't even know. All they said <laughs> is that he has enough vitality. He was particularly more vital than right. the other doctor, and that's why they utilized him. What a Chad doctor. Yeah, so they were just draining <laughs> it. But I'm, immediately as I'm hearing that, I'm like, this sounds like a form of spirit possession or of a psi vampirism or something along those lines, which we've spoken about, you know, last year. It's that kind of stuff. And, like, it all fits in. It sounds like it's good, but, yeah, what got taken from that doctor? And how was it that he was influenced into that situation. So you can see how these things... Did he have some kind of karmic debt? Maybe. I mean, are they... patient or something? How are they pulling the strings? But maybe that plays a role. I, I just don't know. But we'll go into more of those details on some future shows. And obviously, yeah, hopefully if this third book comes out, we'll have to go and find the stunning conclusion. Well, check the show notes if you want more details from uh, Bill Konkoleski. Well done. That's really great. Bill Konkoleski. Whole episode, you get it done. <laughs> just Bill's books. Uh, again, there's two available now, and hopefully we'll see the third one, the conclusion to his experiences uh, pretty soon. And I still feel sorry for this guy who lost his job because he saw a giant mantis being in the forest, and now everyone's making fun of him. Uh, I did then click on the original Daily Star article, and I'm just like, oh, 
Mate, you look like you probably are a little bit unhinged. Maybe. Why? He looks a little, what, what makes him look unhinged? He looks a little unhinged. Why? Dude. He's standing in the forest. He's got his long hair. He's holding up a drawing of a mantis being. I don't know. Maybe it was going to not That's end well for you That's what they told anyway. him to do. They told him to go and stand in a forest and hold up the picture of the mantis being. Jeez, I can't wait till you're abducted and have to go before the press. Let's no, see how I, I you won't look. be. I'll just tell you guys that it'll be just another day of a serious universe. No one will care. I would definitely go to the tabloids. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. the tabloids can definitely get you a job. Mm. My life was ruined by the seven-foot-tall alien. We'll link to that as well. Uh, That's a wrap for this Plus Show. Thank you so much for being a member. We'll catch you on Friday for your next MU. Until then, have a great week. 